I listen to the diaries because it sparks ideas for new adventures. Whether it is an episode about an epic adventure or a backyard micro-adventure, I start thinking about my next adventure. I'm inspired by the people and their stories to go a little farther and dig a little deeper. If you want to add more spark to your adventurous ideas, consider subscribing to the Diaries Plus today. I'm Crystal, a longtime listener from the foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountains in North Carolina. Thanks to everyone who has subscribed to the Diaries Plus. It's been awesome, and you're powering the show as we move into the future. If you're interested in subscribing today, there's a link in the show notes. Please join. Now, on to the show. Hey, Fitz. What's up, Cordelia? Fitz, how far is your commute to work? It is about three and a half miles. Okay, and how do you get there? Um, Usually when the weather's good, I ride my bike. I used to ride all the time, but when it, when it's dark and raining, I kind of, I got geeked out. I've almost gotten hit by a car a couple times. And so in the winter, I usually take the bus or I run. Yeah, it was funny. Actually, this fall, I totally broke the rules and rode and ended up in an accident. So I'd have just gotten out of a splint. Oh, jeez. Yeah. So yeah, that's probably more information than you wanted. But yes, that's how I get to work. <laughs> Would you ever walk to work? Um. Well, it's... Sounds like I should based upon my track record, but no, I don't. I did once, but it was a long time ago and it was pleasant, but it took a long time. So no, probably not. Why does taking a long time make you not want to walk? Um, well, I mean, I just, I cram a ton into my day. That's like how I am, you know? And for me at this stage, like I love walking. Sometimes I take walks to clear my heads, like in the middle of the day, like just around the office, but it's not like an efficient use of time, particularly at that time of day. Mm-hmm. But how do you feel when you bike to work versus drive? Oh, I, I mean, I th- taking that time to be outside, whether it's running or riding my bike, it's just, it ends up being a really nice part of the day. Mm-hmm. You know, I actually walk up to school almost every morning of the year. And I love that. Like I love walking. And that at that time at 730 in the morning, it's totally a fine use of time. You know, it's better than being in the car. For sure. And so, I, yeah, I love being outside, even if it's just on the commute. Yeah, that's the same for me because I live and work in Denver. But a couple of days of the week, I teach musical theater to kids um, in the Denver area, which is about half an hour for me to drive. And when I have the time to bike there and back, I just feel so much better. Like, I feel like I'm actually connecting every single place in between on that commute and I'm connecting to the air temperature and the wind and how I'm feeling in my body and just to know that I'm using my own power to get to the places and do the things that I love doing makes me feel so much better. Yeah, I I feel the same way. So, okay, so if we feel that way about biking, let's imagine how we might feel if we slowed down even more and walked. How much time do you think you actually spend walking, Fitz? Um, You've seen my life, Cordelia. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a runner, both literally and figuratively. Well, and I think that's true for most people in this day and age. We all have these ways to cruise around really fast. Like you can take a car or a train, an airplane, a bike. Electric scooters are all the rage in Denver. And have you ever thought maybe we're missing something? It's entirely possible that I'm missing something, but I don't worry about it so much because I'm too busy missing things? Is that the right answer? No. Um, <laughs> it's an answer. It's an answer. Um, it's entirely possible. I don't know. But that's a good segue because today you've got a story about someone who asked himself that question 
a lot. In fact, Jonathan Stahls asked himself that question, what am I missing? Every day for 242 days as he used nothing but his own two feet to cross the entire country from Delaware to California. He did something that a lot of us are unwilling or unable to do, slow down. And I think that's pretty damn cool. I'm Fitzko Hall. I'm Cordelia Zars. And you're listening to The Dirtbag Diaries. parents split when I was six and it was every two years from that split that I moved. I went to, I think it was 15 different schools growing up. So we went from town to town, house to house. Most of these homes were suburban homes and they all generally looked the same. The driveways looked the same. The cul-de-sacs looked the same. I think a lot of us might understand the kind of place Jonathan grew up. Spread out neighborhoods where children play in secure backyards Places that, despite having all these homes, can almost feel empty. Jonathan would often find himself looking out the window, wondering, where are the people? Where is a connection to the outside world? Where is a connection to neighbor and to, and even to my own sense of courage, my own sense of strength? Like I, you know, I obviously wouldn't put words to it back then like that, but it was deep. There were deep things going on in me. The only time he saw people in these neighborhoods was when they walked down their driveways, got in their cars, and drove away. And he was one of those people, too. Shuttled between house, car, school, car, practice, car, house. Repeat. I just picture the way my head feels as I lose myself in the artificial window and leather of the door as I look at the world going by me. And all the people that share this world with me, that struggle, who don't have this car to take them everywhere, the people that, you you know, just this constant bypassing of what felt like the real world. My coping around this isolation was to toss out a whole jar of coins onto the floor. And then I'd take my hand and I'd separate them in the middle with my other hand covering my eyes. And then that would be the war. The war of these coins versus the other coins. Oh my God. And then I have this sketchbook with the graph of like, okay, well, whoever wins the war is the number of quarters. So it's monetary, but it's also based off of years. So older quarters or older dimes get points. If they're from Denver, they get extra points. If they're, you know, and so this whole like beautiful mind, kids losing his shit, coping with holy crazy isolation. With all the moving from home to home, Jonathan became obsessed with finding community, and that meant fitting in. I wanted to be liked, I wanted to be popular, or not even popular, I just, I wanted to be what people wanted me to be. Ten years later, Jonathan was wrapping up his senior year at Metro State in Denver. I was not publicly out, people didn't know that I was exploring this, this was very much kind of on my own. In those teenage years, constantly on the move, Jonathan had tried to appear straight, masculine and athletic, but internally he'd been grappling with his identity and his sexuality. By the end of college, secretly, he said yes to a date. They decided to go see Into the Wild, 
So I'm opening up this part of me that I've kept hidden from most of the world, but I'm also entering this unknown explosion that I don't know yet is about to happen. <laughs> so I get into this movie and Chris McCandless, you know, the story starts to unfold of his frustration with his upbringing and his relationship to money and to certain systems and to the keep it all together story of what he had to go through and how he just said, no more. I'm going to burn my social security card. I'm going to burn all my money. I'm going to give all my savings to a charity and I'm just going to go free completely without any attachment on this journey to Alaska. It rocked my world. <laughs> it, I forgot completely about the person I was there on a date with. I was so inside my body. I was shaking. I was vibrating. I was grabbing the edges of the seat. I was sweating. I was probably a third of the movie. I'm crying. I'm totally tearing up. And like, if anybody just had the sense to just turn and watch what I was going through physically, <laughs> I was a complete mess. And I was scared of what I was doing. I didn't understand what was going on. At one point in the movie, I was literally out of my seat and kind of kneeled in between the seat and the seat in front of me like so, so uncomfortable with what was going on inside of me as I'm watching this film. His date was pretty freaked out. When the movie finished, Jonathan gave him a quick hug and bounced. He got back to his apartment and just broke down. All I wanted to do was scream. If I wasn't in an apartment building where a lot of people were, I would, I would have been screaming at the top of my lungs, I'm sure. Um, knocked over my microwave, knocked over my computer, knocked over all these different things on my bookshelf that represented... Uh, what was trying to keep me inside of this plugged-in, air-temperature-controlled reality, and I just was reacting against it. Stripped off all my clothes, everything's a mess, everything's been thrown over, and I pull out my guitar, and I just start crying and playing the guitar. A few days later, the idea of shaking off the limitations of society was still bubbling in Jonathan's mind when he walked into the Metro State Library. A table of 20-cent books for sale caught his eye as he walked through the door. Right in front, in the middle of the table, was Walk Across America by Peter Jenkins. And it was almost like tunnel vision. You know, you see those videos and it's like everything around you becomes blurry and like a tunnel. He had three classes and a test that day, but it didn't matter. He sat with that book in his hands until the library closed and then continued reading it on the ride back to his apartment on a noisy, crowded bus. He stayed up most of the night reading and finished the book the next day. And so I just knew. I was like, that's it. That's it. That is it. I'm walking across America. Jonathan only had about $1,000 in his bank account, so he pitched his walk to a nonprofit called Kiva, which helps people fund their ideas through community-based loans. They accepted his pitch and sent an email out to their followers to help Jonathan make it across America. He began making a route for himself, mostly on trails and back roads. But as the whole point of the walk was not to bypass any more people and places, he bagged that idea. Instead, he drew a straight line across the map of North America, resolved to face whatever fell in its path, whether that was big cities or intimidating mountain passes. As his departure date neared, he hadn't received any donations, but he made a pact to himself to do this thing no matter what, even if it took him two years and a handful of odd jobs along the way. Jonathan made a sign to strap to his backpack that read, Kiva Walk Across America, 
hoping that it would encourage people to stop him and have a conversation about what he was doing. Although he was still struggling to understand and accept his sexuality, Jonathan had started seeing a guy, Ben, earlier that spring. They weren't public about it, but they decided to give it a shot and stay together as Jonathan walked across the country. They hugged goodbye, said, see you in a few months, and Jonathan drove off with some friends and his dog Kanoa to Delaware. In a few days, they arrived in the small town of Lewis on the Atlantic coast, where he would point his feet west. It was me and my dog and all my fears, all my anxiety, all my excitement, all my rage, all my joy, all of it. Jonathan had never gone on a backpacking trip before. In fact, until now, he had barely walked. So as you might imagine, he had a few kinks to iron out. I think my pack started at 85 pounds, okay? So anybody who's backpacker, like light backpacking is like, this guy has no idea what he's doing. He also resolved to make Kanoa, his dog, carry his own weight, which turned out to be just as awkward and heavy as Jonathan's pack was on him. It was clunky, but hey, he had to start somewhere. His friends snapped some pictures of him on the beach in his gear, cheered him on, and headed out. That was it. He was alone. It was time to start walking. The first day went pretty smooth, all things considered. Besides a few judgmental stares from drivers and the discomfort of his oversized pack, Jonathan was stoked. It felt good to be moving forward. A handful of people in the area had heard about his trip, so he had a host family set up for his first night on the trail. But day two was up to the universe. That's when it hit. That's when the gut was like, you ready to put that tent somewhere? You ready to just do it? Do you have what it takes, do you, to find yourself in the chaos of the unknown and to just rest in it and trust it and survive if it's no good? He walked straight into those feelings. He traveled on back roads, moving through the small towns that pepper the East Coast every 10 to 15 miles. His pack dug into his shoulders and the stress of taking such an enormous weight on and off started to wear him down. But Jonathan still loved how this was all feeling. His legs felt powerful, and his purpose felt right, so he kept going. Halfway through the day, he got word that his host from the night before had found him a family to stay with tonight. It had started to rain, to pour, actually, so Jonathan was grateful that someone would pick him up and take him to a warm house at the end of the day. It was the daughter that picked me up and she, you know, like picked me up and not really interested kind of in what we're doing, which is fine. Didn't need that. Was grateful. And she was taking me in the van. You know, it was a big old van and we're going to this house not too far away. And then she literally parks the van, gets out the front door, goes in the house. Just boom, 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 in the house. And I'm just like, oh, all right. So me and the dog, you know, we just chilling in the van. Do we go? Do we, do we go into the house? Like, this is day two. I don't know what I'm doing. Do I go into the house? Do I barge my 6'5 ass in this, like, rainy, soaking, sweaty ass in this house? Or do she just shut the door in the house? So it was just like, okay, cool. So I'm like, all right, we just got to do this. This is part of it. So I get my backpack and I just walk into the pouring rain. And so now I'm standing in the rain, knocking on the door. Nobody's coming to the door. Do I just go into the house? So I'm like, no, I gotta knock. Like the, the you know, so I'm just knocking, I'm knocking. Nobody's coming to the door. So then I'm like, okay, you gotta knock harder. So I knock harder. So 
I'm like, well, dude, but you're standing in the rain. And then, so the rain's part, and then I'm like, then I'm like well, how do I, do I, how hard do you knock? At what point do you bang? What point do you start screaming, right? Like these things that you just, that become, for me, that were just so intense. And I'm like, God, what do I, do I just, so then I just sat in the rain because it was too hard. It, it got to the point where I'm not going to yell. I'm not going to bang. I got to get used to just being in it, be in the rain. Eventually, it all worked out. The father came to the door, and Jonathan mangled his way through an explanation of who he was and why he was there. They went inside, chatted, connected. It was his first lesson in navigating those beautiful, awkward moments with strangers, moments which he would face a million more times in the months to come. The more Jonathan walked, the more he began opening himself to the types of spontaneous connections he'd never been exposed to as a child like the one he made in Maryland with a woman who ran through the woods in the pouring rain to walk with him for just 10 minutes. She had seen him and his dog as she was driving home from work, seen his Kiva sign, and been inspired enough to drop everything and sprint in his direction in her work shoes. They ended up eating dinner together, and Jonathan crashed for the night at her house. What was so beautiful is within probably an hour and a half or two hours, we are going into themes that are completely transforming. Like she is bringing up situations in her life that are vulnerable and difficult and, and really heavy. She's sharing things with me that she's never shared with anybody before. And so within a matter of an hour or two, we're having the most beautiful conversation about some of the most hardest things that we both encountered. The next day they cried saying goodbye. They gave each other one last hug and Jonathan hit the road again. He linked up with the Chesapeake and Ohio Canal path which runs through Maryland and into the southern edge of Pennsylvania. He felt good. The weight of his pack had become more bearable, his legs felt stronger, and his interactions with strangers became easier. And finally, donations started to pour through on his Kiva website, so Jonathan had enough money to make it across the country. When he didn't have a family to host him for the night, Jonathan camped out on the side of the road, in public parks, or under bridges. In cities, he spent a lot of time with the homeless population. He would lay out a sleeping bag, listen to their stories, and keep walking the next morning. Through the miles, the conversations, and the connections, Jonathan started feeling a sense of pride replaces insecurity, and a sense of ownership replaces doubt. I'm literally filling this void with material, with soil, with substance. Within two or three months, Jonathan had either shared a meal, walked, or stayed with someone on every end of the political, racial, and socioeconomic spectrum. And it was all from this centered space of hospitality. What do you think it was about the walking itself that facilitated that? Yeah. You are approaching a scenario or a situation with just your body, just your frame, your feet, your hands. And I found pretty early on, you know, especially by the time I got to Ohio, that the actual embodiment of moving this way, that my sheer pace, my stance, my presence, being humble, being open, because how could I be closed if I'm moving in a way that I'm dependent on the, the outside world and on the people that I encounter to help me along, to share this journey with me, that the actual physiological container of walking actually opened and expanded and widened my availability to what shows up. You can't escape humility. You are constantly interfacing with 50, 60, 70 miles an hour of traffic, especially if you're walking on everyday streets. You're eating the bread 
of humility and vulnerability. The nature of walking pretty early on was like, wow, this is, this is transforming. This is, this is human. This is human. Jonathan trucked on through the Midwest, Ohio, Kentucky, Indiana, Illinois. People warned him that this would be the most boring part of the trip, but he found plenty of surprises to spice it up along the way. Ohio, for example, has exotic animal laws. So he would be walking along in rural Ohio and suddenly be petting a camel in someone's backyard or looking at pet tigers in cages. In Illinois, he stumbled upon an 80-acre property with fences all around it and signs that read, Camp Grandma, parents by permission only. A kid named Levi with a lizard on his shoulder showed him to the gate where he made Jonathan deposit all his electronics in a little box and invited him to spend the night in one of their cabins. And there are kids running around this thing, like just free. No parents, no supervision, no helicopter, no I'm afraid of everything. Like the kids are out swinging on branches, climbing trees, throwing mud at each other, running around this thing. And that's just, just what happens. This is Camp Grandma. Then he got to Missouri. The humidity and the heat and just the days of sweating and stinking. Kanoa the dog struggled to finish the long days of walking. They slowed their pace and shortened their days. Cars barreled past them on the highway. As he neared Kansas City, Jonathan felt depleted. It had been a while since he'd had one of those life-affirming interactions with a stranger, and the superficial conversations that replaced them only served to remind him of the secrets he was still holding inside his body. He wasn't talking to strangers about his sexuality for fear of being cast away, for fear of being attacked. He wasn't transparent about his self-doubt and the traumatic isolation of his childhood. As he approached the suburbs surrounding Kansas City, all those familiar insecurities came welling up again. The most stressful environments for me were the suburbs, directly connected to my upbringing, but also just I find that the actual environments are so violent for the human being. There's no seating and water and shade and people. Like it's just these vacant, empty, almost ghost-like spaces where you literally are separated from nature in a lot of ways. And you're also absorbing the exhaust pipes of cars just driving past you and bypassing you. But then you also absorb their chaos. People who are in a hurry, who are beeping and who are hating each other, who are condemning, you know, I drive a car at times. Like, if you don't go, going to hell, like death, I won't die. You know, so like, it's just this, the inhumanity of the automobile and what it does to us. So as a walker, you're like, I just absorbed it. And there was a lot of traffic flying by me and it get really close to me. So the unique thing about walking across the country in the U.S. is you are day by day engaged with private property signs and the speed of automobiles. And just the complete like dehumanization of some of those realities. That private property, my property, not yours, not for anyone. Mine, 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 my, 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 me, me. Like it was just like me. Like I, it, you just had this like, 
the speed of these semi-trucks and the speed of people and the speed of me needing to get where I need to go at the cost of all of what nature has to teach us, at the cost of what can be gained and learned if we walk more in together and if we have time more for each other, at the cost of what could I do with my front yard for community, for rest, for nature, for people. So there were three or four days in Kansas City where I was absolutely on the edge of quitting. I'm like, I'm done. I can't do it anymore. I'm not doing enough. I'm still insecure. I'm, I'm a piece of shit. <laughs> I smell like a piece of shit. And I'm just, I'm, I'm pissed off. I'm angry. I'm sad. Overwhelmed, Jonathan wandered his way to an underpass on a Kansas highway. There was a homeless man already sitting under the bridge. It looked like he might have slept there the night before and maybe sleeping there again. And he's just rocking back and forth and he's like kind of moving these different rocks and you can tell he's just really, you know, there's a lot going on in his brain. And I just was like, he's not doing great. And I can just tell, and I'm not doing great. Like it's one of those stages where I'm just pissed off. I'm speed, me, fences, bullshit. So I'm in my pissed off place and I see this guy and I'm like, okay, I need human connection. I need to be opened. So I just, I start walking up to him and I notice he's not acknowledging me. He doesn't look at me. He doesn't, he's just, he continues to rock back and forth. And I just sit next to him and I take my own set of kind of rocks and sticks and I just join him in putting rocks and sticks into a shape underneath a highway overpass. And we have that moment probably for a good hour and a half. And at one point he looks over and he sees my rocks and sticks and he kind of does this little like, Whoa like this little smirk, like, you know, something. He, there was an acknowledgement of me being there, creating something with these sticks and rocks. And then he kind of went back to his sticks and rocks. Jonathan had to get to another town by nightfall. So he left the homeless man with a few dollars and some almonds and went on his way. I was back to humanity, I was back to fabric, I was back to love, I was back to this essence of human connection that was really, really profound. We'll hear how Jonathan continues to overcome his struggles after a short break. Support for the Diaries comes from Ketone IQ. As I've been getting more and more into longer runs and bike rides, I found myself fighting with my mind. As the miles extend, I feel like my reactions get slower and I make more mistakes, like tripping or falling or just kind of feeling slightly out of sync descending on the bike. On those big days, I've been using Ketone IQ to help my brain keep fueled and sharp. I want to have fun, not bonk. Here's the science. Ketones already exist in your body. When you push up against your boundaries, your body begins to convert stored fat into ketones, which your brain prefers consuming. With Ketone IQ, I feed my brain so my muscles can use the glucose I get from whatever else I eat on the trail. Riders of the Tour de France have been taking the same approach. I am definitely not as fast, but I can apply the same thinking. Give it a try. You save 30% off your first subscription order at ketone.com backslash dirtbagdiaries. Once again, that's ketone.com backslash dirtbagdiaries. The link is in the show notes. Please check it out. Support comes from Kuat Racks, the Piston SR is a single rail bike rack that easily mounts on most roof racks, overlanding utility racks, and truck bed rack systems. The dual ratcheting piston arm grabs your tires and makes no contact with the bike frame. So 
That's better for your bike, right? Plus, the rack has an all-metal construction, genuine Kashima coat, and integrated cable locks. That translates to being super burly. Kuat has taken their Piston Pro X and elevated it. Find more details at kuat.com. Kuat, because you will absolutely love this rack. A week later, Jonathan made it to his home state, Colorado. His cousin Matt joined him for the long climb over the Rockies. Jonathan had been anxious about that section ever since he started his walk, so to pass through those mountains gave him a huge sense of relief and pride. They continued into Utah, where Kanoa the dog finally tapped out. Jonathan's partner Ben came to the border, picked him up, and took him home. He was fine, just pretty done with the whole walk across America thing. At that point, Jonathan also swapped out his backpack for a push cart, and he and Matt soldiered on down to Moab, through the red rocks and the canyons. Matt headed out after Salt Lake City, and soon Jonathan made it to the border of Nevada. And then the season of the desert. It's 120 miles between any kind of fill-up station. It's just walking in open sky bliss and open sky death, too, like the death of the desert, the desperation of the desert, and just the unmatched, the unmatched beauty of it. He set foot along Nevada Highway 50, which is known as the loneliest highway in America. At night, he'd camp on BLM land and wake up each morning to a sunrise stretching across the unmarred desert horizon. Blue sage, mountains, and pure, quiet stars. He even saw wild horses. There were hours, days even, when he wouldn't see another soul. The occasional car driving by would slow, roll down the window, and ask if he needed help or a ride. And I'd be like, no, I'm good. I'm walking. I'm good. But I'd say, if you're coming back, if you could do me a favor and get me a two-gallon jug of water, get me a six-pack of beer, and get me a bag of gummy bears, if you can do that for me, and then bury a hole at mile marker 227, which is about three hours ahead for me, and either send me a text or put a little flag or just say you'll do it, I will trust you and we can do this and I will unearth that and you will have blessed me and it happened all the time. Jonathan would get to his camp spot, set up his tent, and get to work digging up his treasure. As much as the desert felt free and liberating, it also gave Jonathan a lot of time with his own thoughts. His anger mounted as he walked, releasing in lava-like eruptions throughout the day. Anger for the isolation and disconnection society promoted, anger for the walls that trapped him inside as a child, anger for those same walls he'd learned to build inside himself. He just let it out, say everything out loud, let his words float into the endless landscape around him. The desert was this wide, almost like edgeless embrace of all that is. My inner artist, my inner queer, whatever, that journey, and all of that finding its home and its place so naturally at home in the desert. <laughs> oh my God, I'm tasting freedom. I'm not just ideating on it. I'm actually breathing it. Oh my God, it's not perfect, but I feel so much closer to knowing, not just saying it, 
knowing it that I have what it takes. He was almost through Nevada, almost to California, when the desert decided to test him one last time. It's just me and my little baby stroller custom push cart, and I'm just doing my thing walking across the desert, and there is your stereotypical, like, white van, no windows in the distance. Jonathan told himself to stay cool, but he moved his pepper spray closer to reaching distance. He took out his walking stick, and he grabbed his rearview mirror for after he passed the van. I'm now perpendicular with the van. And I'm like, don't look, don't look, don't look, don't look, don't look. And it was like, look, 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 don't look, don't look, 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 don't, 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 in all the voices, all the things. And then you look, and then you're like, look, and then you look. And as soon as I look, of course, I see this weird figure person. It's far enough away that I can't make out details. But then the back of the van, the doors are open. And I see this, I see hands kind of going crazy all over the place. I see something red. And then the face, as soon as I look over, looks at me. I mean, you could... Put this into slow motion and like I just like the yeah. So everything in my guts were now like like my intestines were wrapping themselves around my throat and my teeth. Like I'm just freaked out, maxed. And so I'm like, but keep it together. He could have binoculars, he could have guns, he could have semi-automatic weapons that could shoot me dead in two seconds, pick me up and slaughter me in 150 pieces. Like all the scenarios of like, I'm dead, I'm dead, I'm sausage, I'm going to be sausage. He had about an hour of walking ahead of him, up a big hill, before he'd be out of sight from the van. All I could imagine was these hand motions that I saw and what were these people doing and why would they look at me like that as if I caught them? He forced himself not to look back. He kept walking as quickly as he could without running and finally made it almost up the hill. And I hear the door shut, and I hear the van driving. I'm like, oh my god, I'm dead, I'm dead, I'm cut up. So then all the like serial killer, your body's gonna get cut up sausage stuff starts again. And then I'm like, okay, 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 but don't look, don't you look back. You got, that's why you got this rear view mirror, you got the mirror. So you look at that mirror. So I'm like looking in that mirror. I mean, the breathing, the fear, all of it, right? Like as if I just lost all of my strength. And I look through the mirror. Van drives all the way up to Highway 50. And I see the what looked like a fuzzy image of the person in the passenger seat. So there it must have been two people, one in the driver's seat, one in the passenger seat. And they were just watching me walk all the way up. So for another probably 45 minutes to an hour, I just in complete and utter death panic, but also in like speaking truth and being strong and you'll hit him with your stick, like all the scenarios you can imagine. But it was the longest two hours of... of <laughs> of that entire journey in the desert where they just watched me walk up and over the mountain. The mysterious people in the van, they didn't come after him. Jonathan made it safely over the hill and didn't look back. Still, he felt like that day tested him in his ability to calm his mind when it began to panic, to stay focused and strong, to trust, even in the face of danger, that if he kept walking, he'd be okay. A little over a week later, Jonathan reached the border of California. A friend of his, Lena, came and joined him for the last two weeks of the journey. They cruised together through the Napa Valley, stopping to taste wine and relish the lush coastal climate. You know, as soon as I turned a corner and I saw the Golden Gate Bridge and I saw the Pacific Ocean, I just stopped, stunned. My whole body 
my whole everything just stopped in complete awe. Tears, tears of like, you just put roots into the soil for your own walk on this earth for the rest of your life that is going to ground and sustain and teach. There was just this like moment of literally feeling like this aged tree that had found its soil, that had found its ground, that had found its song in relationship to the earth, to people, to my own sense of freedom and self. You know, it was that moment when I really saw the ocean that I had that kind of like the beginning of that like, On the last day, almost a hundred people came to meet Jonathan at the Golden Gate Bridge. Host families from his first few months flew out to see him finish. His parents, his partner, staff from the Kiva team, and his dog Kanoa. Together, they walked the last few miles through San Francisco to North Beach. And I ran into that ocean and the words that were just loud, 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 with so much joy as me and my dog run into the ocean is, I have what it takes, I have what it takes, I have what it takes. This person that left the Atlantic Ocean uh, insecure, disconnected, feeling separate, dying inside, hiding, and feeling like the authentic me isn't wanted in this world, just gave my life to people, their stories, their pain, their hope, their joy, their the earth and its lessons and its longings and its cries, the devastation, the injustice, the pain, the anger, they became my teacher. The wisdom of all these different things became my teachers and my sounding boards and my belief system inside of this really, really complicated journey in being human on this planet. Take me where the wild things sing Take me where the crickets ring Take me where everything's green Thanks so much to Jonathan for sharing his story. Jonathan founded Walk to Connect, which organizes 40 to 50 walks each week centered around human connection and intrinsic paths, which help people find their creativity through walking, meditation, and art. Jonathan also married his partner, Ben, last year. Congratulations, you two. To see pictures from Jonathan's walk, follow us on Instagram at dirtbag underscore diaries. Music today from Little Glass Men, Jason Tyler Burton, John Barry, Cloud9, Publish the Quest, Kai Engel, Ken Christensen, and Cordelia Zars. The tracks are courtesy of Free Music Archive or with the permission of the artists themselves. Jacob Bain and Nice Koto composed our theme song. You can find links to the artists at our website, dirtbagdiaries.com. This episode was produced by Cordelia Zars, Becca Cahal, and me, Fitz Cahal. You've been listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. Thanks for tuning in. Take me where walking is liberty Take me where to be is to breathe And to breathe is to see Take me where the air is blue Take me where the people can walk with you Take me where there's nothing to do